This is Jason Holleran. I proudly served for 33 years, culminating as the Deputy Commandant at West Point. Put this on your calendar. World War II weekend inside Old Bethpage Village Restoration on Long Island. Scores of operational vintage armor in formation May 18th and 19th. Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman invites you to join him in saluting America's greatest generation and all those who have worn the uniform in defense of our freedoms. That's May 18th and 19th, presented by the Museum of American Armor. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Welcome to the Larry Kudlow Show. Great to be with you today. Lots to talk about. Republican wave is developing. The cavalry is coming. Inflation is the number one issue. By the way, you you can catch us uh, on the Internet. You can live stream us, LarryKudlowShow.com. Run it all across the country, around the world, throughout the solar system. We have a terrific solar system following. It's growing by leaps and bounds. And um, please, during the week, please don't forget us. Fox Business News, the name of the show is Kudlow. And it plays from 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday. And if by some crazy reason you can't get it live at 4, just text your favorite nine-year-old. who will teach you how to DVR the show, and you'll never miss a thing. So I want to begin with um, a very simple, direct, straight thought. We have, uh, what, 25 days left until the midterm elections. And my thought here is the number one issue, number one, and frankly, it's number two and three, is inflation. We had a very bad inflation report this week. It's the second straight month inflation came in higher. Inflation is actually rising, not falling. It's actually getting worse, not better. And I believe Republicans must keep the Biden inflation as the number one issue in their campaign, okay? Nothing matters more than inflation, nothing. Let's make this real simple. You know, I worked for Ronald Reagan many years ago, and he taught us how to make very simple, straightforward uh, policy thoughts and declarations, just a few things. In this case, it is all about inflation. Record high inflation is killing families. It's killing working folks. It's killing take-home pay. It's killing groceries on kitchen tables. And it's killing the economy. And everybody knows it. It is by far the number one issue. And no matter what Joe Biden may say, the reality is the inflation buck started with him and continues on him to this very day. No matter what he says. People know better. They know it from their own experiences. As I say, families are hurting, budgets are hurting, working folks are losing weight. Real wages, you know, wages, take-home pay after inflation, down 18 consecutive months for a loss of about 5%. You're working harder. Your wages may be rising, but the inflation rate is rising more. So you're losing ground. People hate that. Groceries, cars, Medicare, serve all kinds of services, restaurants, you name it. And this was caused by Joe Biden. Joe Biden. When Biden was, excuse me, when Biden was elected, November, December 2020, 
the inflation rate was barely above 1%. Okay, today it remains over 8 In fact, by the time Biden was inaugurated, the economy was growing about 6.5%. Today, GDP is falling. We had a lot of lousy retail sales number this week besides the inflation hikes. Biden has mangled this economy because he's a socialist, because of his progressive policies. But the key point here, and every poll shows this, this is what I want to go. Polls are here. The Gallup poll, 59%. 59% of Americans are now concerned about inflation. 38% regard it as the number one issue. And I'm going to be honest with you, even though I think crime is a big issue in the cities and across the country, it doesn't come close right now to this inflation. Rasmussen, good pollsters, likely voters, 84% say rising prices will be important in their vote. And that includes 77% of Democrats. 60% believe the president's policies are to blame for higher inflation. Okay. It is Biden's inflation. The buck stops here on him. He tries to worm out of it, just like he did yesterday or, or sorry, Friday. He said the inflation rate is 2%. No, it's not. It was 2% for three months because gas prices fell, which is fine. But, of course, they're still way above where they were. They're just not $5 anymore. They're closer to $4. They were two and a quarter when he was elected. But apart from that, the inflation rate is 8 or 9 or 10%. Food prices, what, 11%. Grocery prices, 13%. Food at home, that kind of thing. So it isn't 2%. Earlier last year, Biden says there was no inflation. Remember that? Then he said it was transitory. Then last summer, this past summer, he tried to say it was zero. Then Friday, he said it's two. I mean, he can't figure it out. The reality is inflation is eating into our incomes and our lives. And it is bringing the economy down. Wrecking the housing market, by the way, with a 7% plus 30-year mortgage. Interest rates are rising. The Federal Reserve is tightening. They're late to the party, but it's just causing more pressures. Stocks are falling. Retirement accounts are falling. Savings are falling. This is the number one issue. And I I may sound simple-minded, but I want to be simple-minded. I want to be simple-minded because I, I say this in all the guests, people running for the Senate and the House that come on the TV show, I say this, and anybody out there listening, I say this. Don't get involved in distractions. The main issue is not global warming, not by a long shot. It's no longer abortion. Abortion was hot after the Supremes ruled. That's now off the table. It is about inflation. Democrats don't want to talk inflation. Here, in these Senate races, anybody that voted for the so-called Emergency Relief Act in March of 2021, that was the igniter of inflation. Any senator, Democrat, because no Republicans voted for that, any senator, and they all did, they must be held accountable. In these debates, they should be held accountable. And more recently... This so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which is the Inflation Increasing Act, because it's going to spend six, seven hundred billion dollars 
on uh, various Green New Deal items. It was the Build Back Better bill in a boiled-down version. All the Democrats voted for it. They must be held accountable because it is furthering inflation, worsening inflation. Those two bills. And I will throw into this anybody that supports the cancellation of student loans, which is essentially asking middle-class people to bail out rich people, that, too, is inflationary. That's not a $200 billion package, as it was originally estimated by Biden. It is at least a $500 billion package, and some estimates by these economic models, the University of Pennsylvania and others, because it's a trillion dollars. Emergency relief, build back better, student loan cancellations, these are inflationary policies inflationary policies. The CPI rose 8.2% for the past year. The producer price PPI, 8.5%. The core CPI, you could take out food and energy, it's 6.6%, the highest in 40 years. And you shouldn't take out food. You can take out energy, you shouldn't take out food. This is inflation. As I say, when Joe Biden was elected president, Inflation was barely above 1%. Barely above 1%. And that's why everybody should just focus on this. Everyone. If you're running for the House, focus on inflation. If you're running for the Senate, focus on inflation. It is the number one issue. Number one. Don't make this any harder than it needs to be. Double-digit food prices, car prices, shelter prices, housing, medical care prices, services prices. Republicans did not vote for 18 straight months of falling real wages. These were Democratic bills, Democratic spending, Democratic borrowing, Democratic failures. It is this whole progressive, utopian, socialist dream which has failed dismally. Failed dismally. Now, look at I know crime is rampant. And I know open borders and illegal immigration. And I know all these crazy race and gender theories and sex theories in schools. And I know defunding the police. And I know playing footsie with America-hating dictators, you know, to get an extra barrel of oil from Venezuela and Iran. All right. And I know that uh, we've gone from energy domination to energy dependence. We've given the energy power back to the Saudi OPEC, I think those are all important points. But the overriding point, you have to make this real simple. Picture yourself in a debate. No matter what the Democratic opponent says, you come back to inflation with some numbers, with some family experiences, and they voted for the Biden bills in 2021 and 2022. They voted for That includes, you know, my pal Joe Manchin, who's now the most unpopular politician in West Virginia. He's going to lose a seat in a couple years. It's typical. Mark Kelly in Arizona, he voted for these bills. Warnock in Georgia, he voted for these high inflation bills. Stay on message is what I'm saying. You have a chance here for a wave election. The cavalry is coming. Look this morning, the latest Rasmussen report poll. There's a likely voters, 2,500 likely voters 
the generic ballot, the GOP is now a plus seven on the generic ballot. They were plus three uh, a week or two ago. You can see the wave developing. Mark Penn, Democratic pollster, and a very good one, was on uh, Fox Business, said the same thing. You can see the wave developing. This election is not about abortion. It is not about climate change. It is about inflation and killing family budgets and killing the economy. What you have to do here is kill inflation. In fact, we can make this a new Bill O'Reilly book, Killing Inflation. That should be his next book. Maybe I'll help him write it. But that is the GOP message. Make it real simple and straight. Do not let up. It is going to give us our country back, that message. It will give us our free market capitalism back, that message. It will give us limited government back, that message. It will give us the tools of regulatory oversight. It will give us the tools to look into the politicalization of the FBI and the Justice Department. It will give us the tools to close the borders again. It will give us the tools to help parents regain schools. But to do that, you need to win both houses, House and Senate. And to do that, you have to harp on inflation. It is the number one issue. Right now, nothing else much matters. I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll take a quick break. Be right back. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great pleasure to be with you. So I I just want to hammer on this again. The number one issue is inflation. By far. I don't want to diminish crime. I know crime's a big problem. Border, the border's a big problem. Education's a big problem. Parents' rights are a big problem. But inflation, because it has actually gotten worse in the last couple months, despite the predictions of the Biden administration and despite the fraudulent statements by Biden, and despite the fact that he won't take ownership of it, it has gotten worse. And families are feeling the pinch. And the polls are reflecting this. It's like 40% top issue. Nothing else is close. I mean, I hate to say it because I think crime's a huge issue. I mean, here in New York City and all these big cities, Philadelphia, Detroit, Chicago, I know it's a huge issue. But the reality is crime's way down the list. Abortion's even lower. And global warming's at the bottom. Nobody cares about that stuff because inflation is wrecking the economy. It is wrecking family budgets, and it is wrecking your paycheck. It's also wrecking the stock market if you're in retirement. By the way, about 125 million people at least own shares. Seniors are getting killed because of inflation. Now, gasoline prices in the last couple of months gave a lot of relief to inflation. Of course, how did Biden do that? He wrecked the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. He upped the ante. We're now more than a million barrels a day worth of sales. So he pushed down gasoline prices from five bucks to nationwide. You know, some places it's six, seven bucks, but nationwide from five bucks to less than four bucks. Now it's coming back because the Saudis turned around and screwed us and cut back production by two million barrels a day. So you're not, not going to get any gasoline price relief in the next few inflation reports. In fact, Inflation reports in the next couple of months are going to be a lot worse because they will not benefit from 
fall in gas prices, and everything else is going up. It's getting broader and more embedded. And by the way, just as an aside, part of the inflationism here is because Biden shut down the spigots for fossil fuels. This, you know, again, this progressive socialist climate change central planning jamming down our throats something that nobody in their right mind believes that we're going to end fossil fuels in five or 10 years. There is no alternative structure. 75 to 80 percent of our power comes from fossils. How stupid is that policy? But instead of producing now 14 million barrels a day, which is what the estimates were three, four years ago, we're producing under 12. So the Saudis can cut back a couple of million barrels a day, and they have us literally over a barrel. We should not have let that happen. Now, that's a matter of economic security, energy security, and national security. But the Bidens, you know, want to blame Saudis. No, blame yourself. You should have opened up the production of fossil fuels. Vladimir Putin invading Ukraine like a madman that he is. All prices go up. The answer is open the spigots. We can produce more. Instead of penalizing our great oil and gas producers, we should be rewarding them, incentivizing them for the sake of our country, for the sake of freedom, and again, for the sake of families and ordinary working folks. These were things Biden never did, and he's going to pay for that. But, 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 Republican politicians running in this election, House, Senate, whatever, have got to keep making the point. It is about the many manifestations of inflation. What is inflation? It's too much money chasing too few goods. You'll hear Art Lafford, most distinguished economist in the country, be on in just a few moments after the quick break. Too much money. Well, the Fed printed too much money. The federal government printed too much money with all these massive spending bills. And while they're doing that, they inhibited, they blocked, they depressed the production of goods. They did it in the energy area. They're attacking businesses left and right. Look what they're trying to do with the gig economy. They don't want these independent contractors. They want to kill the gig economy. It's a perfect example. They're raised taxes on businesses. They're regulating businesses more and more heavily with red tape and social justice theories and racial justice requirements and global warming requirements. You follow? Instead of more goods, we're producing fewer goods. Instead of less money, we're producing more money. So now you have more money chasing fewer goods. Guess what? Prices go up. That's called inflation. The dollars in your wallets and your pocketbooks have been devalued by these erroneous, destructive, left-wing, progressive, socialist policies. But it all comes down to fighting inflation. Anybody who voted for those big spending bills has to be held accountable. It is the GOP's best bet. And then you're going to pick up 25, 30 seats in the House, and you're going to pick up two, three, four seats in the Senate. And then you can start to take back the country and end the socialism and restore free market capitalism. I'm Larry Kudlow. 
the great Art Laffer on the other side of the break will help us through this and maybe even talk about the catastrophe in Britain. Please stick around. We'll be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. All right, welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great pleasure to welcome back my dearest friend and mentor, Dr. Arthur Laffer, longtime chair and founder of Laffer Associates, Reagan advisor, top Reagan advisor when we met many, many years ago, and uh, recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom. President Donald Trump. Good morning, Arthur. Thank you for helping good us. Good morning, today. Larry. How are you, sir? I'm good. You know, there's, there's two things I want to talk about. One of them is that uh, Biden inflation, which I think is the number one issue in the campaign right now. Uh, we're looking at a Republican way. But before we get there, Art, you know, uh, this uh, British story with Liz Trust folding like a cheap dress on what would have been a terrific pro-growth supply-side recovery in Britain. This is a sad tale. I mean, now she's thrown in the towel on the, I know the top income tax rate, which uh, you were arguing, and but she's now thrown in the towel on the corporate tax rate. There's a lot of spending in this thing. The British pound is going to become the British ounce. I mean, <laughs> this whole story is so depressing, Art Laffer. It, it is depressing, but it's, you know, it's a false start, Larry. And, you know, false starts happen, and then after a period of time, the real one happens. You know, we've had a bunch of those before Reagan, as you well know, and then all of a sudden Reagan came in, all the stars aligned, and boom, we had the boom of all booms. And, uh, you know, what's happening here, I mean, in, in Britain is you got a false start. The conservatives are going to take over and become the, the liberals, the, uh, the left-wing labor party. Mm. And then the labor is going to come in, and then we'll have our true revolution. But don't think Kwasi Kwarteng, uh, who was chancellor of the exchequer, don't think that his, his job was in vain. It's not. It's setting the table for Britain to really make a comeback in the next four or five years. And it will. Well, that's a good positive uh look at it but i'll tell you she threw him under the bus i mean i mean just it's the it's sort of rank politics it was her policy she made him the chancellor he's a smart guy he believes in supply side economic growth incentives and she fires him because all these stupid rich tory backbenchers and former cabinet members who they put in there this guy he's a real nothingheimer uh, is the new chancellor. I mean, he's a, I know him. I mean, he's I a, love you, Larry. You're just great. Yes, a, he, she did do that. She did do that. Nothing. All these guys that went to Eton and whatever these places are, they don't care about working folks or economic growth. They don't. Well, you know, he went to quasi went to those two. Just oh. so you know, oh. he went to Eton and he went to Oxford. Oh. Uh, all of that was quasi. Oh. Uh, so he was the good guy in there. He was the supply server. I don't think it's Eaton or Oxford that does it. It's the content of character of the individual. I mean, when you look at all of us Yaleys, would you ever expect a Yaley like Dave Gergen and like uh, all these others? Who would expect a Yale to be free market pro-growth? But every now and then you get a Lieberman, you get a Dick Cheney, you get an Art Laffer. I mean, you know, it's not the organizations. It's the idea and it's the content of character. And unfortunately, she's not a Margaret Thatcher. She's just plain not. And we'll find one, and it'll happen. Boy, I hope you're right. It, it just is. Oh, I am right on that one, Larry. Believe me, I am. the The table is set in Britain for a major economic revolution. Really? And oh, oh yes, they've had an awful bad performance there. You know, the uh, uh, Boris Johnson. I mean, what uh, what a silly one he was. Right. I mean, he was just terrible. He was the Richard Nixon, if you will, of of, of Britain's conservatives. 
And uh, it, this will come about. And this will change. I think it's going to take a labor government to do it. And the labor government will get in, and then it won't last very long. And then we'll get the real one. Remember, it took Jimmy Carter to create Ronald Reagan. And it really did, Larry. In 1976, when Reagan ran and was beaten in the primary by Jerry Ford, by just a few votes, I mean just a few, uh, Reagan would not have, have had he been won and been elected, he would not have been the person he was. It, it really did take Jimmy Carter's perfect example of silliness huh. uh, to create what, it, it, what we now remember and live and love as Ronald Reagan. Is the same thing going to apply here? Yes, sir. Totally. The year is 1978 in America, oh. and we are living in the first two years <laughs> of Jimmy Carter on steroids. <laughs> and it is perfect, Larry. It just couldn't be better, to be honest. I, it really couldn't be better. If you remember, the Democrats controlled the whole system there under Jimmy Carter, and mm-hmm. it was just, you know, it, it's just the perfect stage setting for a revolution. And I'm, I'm so pleased with what's happening. I mean, I don't like what they did. I wish the Democrats were Kennedy Democrats, but they're not. But when we take over in 2024, it's going to be a beautiful era, probably even better than Reagan. Well, I tell you, besides you and Steve Moore and Steve Forbes and a couple others, Joe Biden has done more to revive free market capitalism oh, than, yeah. any, than anybody I know. <laughs> Let me ask you about the, the viewership of your show. I mean, and, and you, most of all, but Fox in general. Yeah. I mean, you're doing your kick of the slats out of the crib yeah. because of the horrible behavior of Joe Biden. He could have done such a different job and become so popular, but nope. He just had to be so anti-Trump, so anti-free market, so anti-everything you and I believe in that it's just set the table for us. Yeah, actually, you know, it's um, thank you for your point about Fox Business. Just had our 15th anniversary. I uh, saw your picture in that. Wow. <laughs> Lauren. Why were you standing in the back? That's where I belong. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> By the way, the others are great, too. I mean, you've got the most wonderful team on Fox Business I've ever seen. Yeah, I mean, actually. Um, uh, because it's all free market oriented. I mean, look, FBN covers the news, the good and the bad, and so forth. But the underlying, uh, the underlying uh, vibration, if you will, is you know free markets and uh, capitalism, yeah. and and we are uh, killing the competition. I mean, really are. It's a tremendous thing. Lauren Pedersen's the president of Fox Business, and she encourages this. And I mean, I can tell you, working there, I'm the rookie. I've uh, been there a little less than two years. It's a wonderful place to work, but they don't mess with the content. You know, it's up to the anchors, the hosts, to pr- yep. pursue these um, market. Well, I can tell policies. on your show it is. I mean, it's strictly Larry Cudlow all the way. It's yeah. lovely. Well, that's just the most fun I've had in ages. And you, by the way, you have been instrumental in our success. You, oh, cut Arthur. it out. Flattery will get you everywhere, yeah, Larry. I true. love it what you say. But you should see your numbers. There. You'd probably want a bonus if you came. If I, you should see uh, yeah, your ratings. I think it double my salary, Larry, and it'd still be the same, <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> so let's talk about public enemy number one. All these polls, likely voters show, by far, Arthur, the biggest problem in America is inflation. And my argument here is that in the last 25 days of the election, you know, the Republicans running in the House and the Senate, the so-called cavalry, as I call it, have just got to focus down on inflation. Any Democrat that voted for these big spending bills must be held accountable. 
And I yeah. think this is the path to victory. I don't want to make it any more complicated, Art, than it needs to be. Yeah, and all of them running did vote for it. I mean, right. I, I watched Tim Ryan claim he's not a Democrat, he's independent, he's a conservative, he's a blue dog. Nonsense. He voted for Build Back Better. Yeah. He voted for it all the way. In fact, I didn't even hear him squeak back then. Every one of these guys is now trying to change the course of what they did. Every single Democrat in the House and every single Democrat in the Senate voted for that nonsense. And they deserve to be turned out. And not only deserve to be turned out for their bad policies, but deserve to be turned out because they don't have the content of character, Mm. the clarity of vision Mm. to ever oppose Nancy Pelosi, ever, ever, ever. Mm. And that's just not the way democracies uh, run. You You elect a person who you expect that person will vote what he or she believes to be right. And I'm going to tell you, these guys were railroaded into voting with her on every single issue, and that's not what's good for America. They should be thrown out in their ears. The Senate races, you know, there's nothing clear. If you voted, if you voted for the so-called emergency relief spending in 2021, and if you voted for this uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which is really build back better in disguise, it's a Green New yes, Deal in is. disguise. And if you're supporting these, you know, student loan cancellations that may cost up to a trillion dollars, this is all inflationary. Putting them, totally. putting the Fed stuff aside, you know, you taught us. All this government spending depresses economic growth. It has taxes and regulations that depress production. We have too much money chasing too few goods. They all have to be held accountable. You know, in Arizona, Mark Kelly running against Blake Masters. Kelly voted for all this stuff. In Georgia, Warnock voted for all this stuff. Um, these are. This is exactly how this race should be won. I'm just saying it's like Reagan, you know, message with just a couple of clear points. Don't make this yeah. any complicated, more complicated. No, it's not complicated. You're totally right. And remember, there were people like Kent Hance and Phil Graham yes. who were Democrats who showed their own independence and their own clarity of thought to be vote with, go with Reagan and do the bills. In fact, Kent and, and, and Phil co-sponsored the two major bills, right. the spending bill, the, uh, the uh, Graham Lotta, mm-hmm. and, the, and the tax rate cut bill, which is uh, Hans Conable. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no reason why Democrats can't do a good job if they, if they really voted with the way they believe as opposed to how Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer tell them. Mm, totally right. That's really bad for America. When you have a unanimous vote by one party on every issue. So that's another key thing. You want election returns that put a check on all this. Say, stop, stop, no more. Yeah, stop, no more. And, you know, we don't want you there because you are not the person. You are just a Democratic cog. Yeah, that's exactly right. All right, let me take a quick commercial break, and I I just need you afterwards for five or six more minutes. It's a deal. On too much money chasing too few goods and how the hell – because this inflation story – you predicted this uh, early in the summer that inflation was not going to go down. It was going to stay bad, and you were exactly right. You were one of the very few people. Well, it doesn't take Nostradamus to predict the obvious. The whole world, you know, Wall Street was saying inflation's – Yeah, I know, but they – They were saying their own self-interest. No, that's right. They were touting their stuff. You're right. Anyway, folks, we're talking to the great Arthur Laffer, the founder of Supply Side Economics, a recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom, my dear friend and mentor. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking to the great Art Laffer, who, by the way, has a new book out. The name of the book is Taxes Have Consequences. 
an income tax history of the U.S. How's the book doing, Art? I think it's doing okay. I, you know, I don't know what to trust on all these things. They say we're doing really well. Good. But uh, I don't have the darn book. I don't. I, I'm going to bring it to you, Larry. The next time I see you, I'm going to carry it, hand carry it in a little velvet box with a beautiful inscription on the inside and uh, just a little halo over the top to represent <laughs> your role in the world. And uh, it'll just be perfect. Promises, promises. Yeah, promises. it's going to be hand delivered. All right. I'm waiting for that. Now, too much money chasing too few goods. Um, you look at these inflation numbers from the latest CPI report. And you look at the median CPI from the Cleveland Fed, the wage tracker from the Atlanta Fed. I mean, the story is getting worse, not better. Yes, that's true. And what's, you know, if you go and think of it in very simple terms, Larry, you've got three markets, a money market, a bond market, and a goods market. This is all Patinkin's work, by the way, in Israel. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's just, if you have an excess supply of money because they printed way too much money and you have an excess demand for goods because they've crushed the supply of goods, uh, how does the how does the market equilibrate those two markets? And there's only one way they can do it. The price of goods in terms of money has to rise so that it uh, so that it uh, reduces the demand for goods and so it in, and reduces the supply of money. And you know that's exactly what's needed. If you have this excess money supply out there, uh, one way to absorb it is to produce more. But unfortunately, the policies are anti-production. They're anti-investment. Exactly. They're creating the excess demand for goods because they're crushing the supply of goods. Right. And what we need to do is to reduce the excess demand for goods, Larry, is to increase the supply of goods dramatically. And, you know, that's what has to be done. And they're not even moving there. And none of the economists on the other side are talking at all about increasing supply. Some of them are talking about it with regard to oil and and gas and stuff like that a little bit. Mm -hmm. I mean, they want to open up the reserves. Uh, They want to do some of the uh, buying from Venezuela and Iran and all the enemies of America to increase the supply. So but that's the only part that they're making any sense. I don't get them. They, They should want to increase the supply of all goods and services. By cutting taxes, deregulating the economy, and freeing trade, all of those things are so, so, so important. Yeah, which really runs counter to this progressive agenda. Now, is the people saying how tight the Fed is? Is the Fed really tight? No, the Fed is very loose. And the way you can tell it's loose is look at the interest rate, all right? Mm -hmm. Look at, let's say, the 10-year bond year rate Mm -hmm. and see if it's low or high relative to what it should be with this type of inflation and this type of growth. And, of course, my view is that the 10-year bond yield to get someone to actually buy it because of its yield would probably have to be around 12%. Mm. So compare 12% to 4%, and you can see just how easy money is. That's true. It just just makes no sense. They need to let interest rates rise to the level where money is once again tight. Mm. Uh, Interest rates have to be in the 12% range for the 10-year bond yield. Otherwise, it won't happen. Now, people say, oh, you can't do that. That'll crash the economy. Let me tell you what will happen when the inflation rate gets up, the core rate gets up to 8, 9, 10, 15% the way it was with us back in the early, well, back before Reagan took office. And then you're going to really get interest rates. So the Fed's not really selling bonds. I mean, their balance sheet. They're buying bonds. They're buying, but they're still buying bonds. I mean, <laughs> of course they have to to keep that interest rate low. They couldn't do it otherwise. Now they can buy bonds in many, many ways. 
They can cause changes in regulations. They can do repos and Mm -hmm. all that other stuff. There are lots of different ways of them buying bonds, but they are in the market for buying bonds to keep that interest rate low. And that's the big problem. That is the problem on the Fed side. I mean, this goods market side is, of course, all the stuff that we talk about on taxes and regulations. But it's a simple excess supply of money and an excess demand for goods. Mm. you got to reduce the supply of money by letting interest rates rise dramatically and let the Fed balance sheet run off, number one. And number two, you've got to increase the supply of goods with tax cuts, deregulation, and other pro-growth policies. Free trade. My God, should we be having free trade. So we can increase the supply of goods available for us to buy. We should um, – they should be pursuing the free trade agreement with Britain. Of course they should. Tough, you know. But no, no, no. They, they want to show their macho-ness. Well, they're going to get their comeuppance. So um, I'm talking to a couple of these people. We had, for example, Elise Stefanik, very smart woman upstate yep, New I, York. I know who she is, uh, the congresswoman. Yeah, in the leadership – and I talked to her. I said, look, Elise, do you have a plan day one? You, you, you're going to have the House January 3rd. Uh, you're elect Kevin McCarthy, who's a good man. you you got to have an immediate strategy. And um, she was pretty good. I mean, in terms of fiscal policy, as you say, creating tax incentives and lower regulations and so forth, it seems like she gets it. Uh, and I had John Thune on. Actually, I, I heard that night. John Thune. He was terrific, yes. by the way. He, he, by the way, he gets, in my opinion, the most improved player award. I mean, the guy's really. He is amazing. What he said on your show and everything. Yeah. I, I, you know, I was asking your producer because I was on next. Who's that? Who's that? I can hear his voice. He's saying all yeah. this stuff really great. Yeah. And John Thune. And they have to, you know, my thought is they will have a crisis because we are going to have inflation and recession when they take office. So they need to use that crisis properly, not for bad points. but for Can I make a suggestion to you, Larry? Yeah. yeah. Why don't you tell these guys that if they would like, you and Art Laffer uh, will write a plan for them, a 10-page plan Uh on exactly how they should go about doing it, what legislation they should do, uh, purely economics with some – make sure it's political too, Mm -hmm. but how they can do it. To really bring that inflation down, bring that GDP growth up, and make for the prosperous economy. You and I could write this in a long weekend yep. and have it just done. You should tell them, Jeff. Just ask us to do it, and we'll do it for you. All right. You got a deal. You absolutely have a deal. Um, you know, soon I mean, You and I have written a lot of those things together for a lot of years, Larry. <laughs> I know. And, and the point – I mean, again, it goes back to Reagan uh, before Stockman turned tail. Remember, Stockman wrote a good memo. Kemp, I do remember with Jack Kemp. Kemp that was, was a pretty involved. good. Uh, yeah. What was it? That Armageddon or something like that? No, I don't. I'm, I'll go find it. I got it in my files. Yeah, I've got it too. I've got it too. But the thing is, they will inherit a very bad situation, and they need to act immediately. So they need to, you know, employ the tools they have. Biden may try to veto all this stuff, but they do hold the purse strings. They do, oh. you know, they have the yeah. appropriations. They have the regulatory authority, by the way. So they just, you know, they need to be ready. I mean, I think yeah. that's what the they case. also need to do is do it politically, Larry. Uh, I would have suggest to them, as I suggested to you last night, is that they should have a bill just repealing the one provision on 87,000 new IRS agents and $80 billion. Just put that up and see how the Democrats vote on it in the House. Mm-hmm. See how the Democrats vote on it in the Senate. 
and then see if Biden vetoes it. Mm. And, you know, they don't want to vote for that. And I think you're going to find a lot of Democrats uh, 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 abandoning ship. You think Biden? I would love to see that. I'd love to see the Democrats coming back to being a a credible, reasonable, responsible party. I just would love to see them be independent and responsible like Phil Graham and like Kent Hansen, like some of the others. The way we hoped Joe Manchin would have been, but he wasn't. I know. That was the... A great hope, but that, we've that, got a real problem on the on the lame duck session, Larry. If the vote comes out the way we believe it will, they will have one last shot at the apple. I know they will. They did that deliberately with this continuing resolution that ends December fifteenth, which gives them two yeah. weeks to throw every darn spending thing in the hopper. They sure did, and that's a that's a problem. If they do that sort of stuff, I don't think they'll ever get back in. Mm. Well, good. Uh, well, but tell the congressmen and senators, Larry, that you and I voluntarily will do a plan for them. All right. Literally specific legislation. Boom. You got a deal. You got a deal. All righty, sir. All right. Art Laffer, you sound great. Can't thank you enough. Enjoy You're the terrific, weekend. Larry. All right, folks. Thank I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll take a quick break, and I'll be right back. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great pleasure to be with you, as always. So we've got some. The cavalry's coming here to New York. Cavalry's coming to New York. Um, New York Post this morning. My pal Lee Zeldin gaining on uh, Kath Hochul, Governor Hochul. New independent poll shows Lee is closing the gap. Lee Zeldin's going to win for governor. He's going to win for governor. And uh, I guess crime is going to be the key issue here in New York. Crime, education, taxes, and so forth. But we've also got another really hot race where the cavalry is coming, and that is for the state attorney general. Michael Henry is the Republican candidate running against this crazy woman, Letitia James, who has nothing but Trump derangement syndrome. And we welcome Mr. Michael Henry to the show. Michael, thank you for coming on. We appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me this morning, Larry. So um, uh, my friend Monica Crowley says you're a winner. And um, I've been meaning to get you on. And I, I want to talk about Letitia James in a minute. But, you know, this other story, Hochul's hush slush. She's got all this money, billion dollars in bribes. Uh, 385 million for this, 350 million for that. Uh, I've talked to Lee Zeldin about this. Um, all these uh, no bid contracts to her campaign donors. I mean, we're talking about uh, hundreds of millions of dollars of no bid contracts. I mean, couldn't a good state attorney general do something about this craziness? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, I'll highlight a couple of the instances of, of what's going on and then say what I could do as the next uh, state attorney general. So we, we've actually called on Letitia James to speak up on these scandals, and she's re- just really shown um, no interest in speaking up, really just turning a blind eye. Uh, there's two specific instances that are really troubling. The first one is medical answering services. It's this Medicaid transportation company where the owner and his husband donated about $100,000 to both Kathy Hochul and the state Democrat Party. Party. They even held a fundraiser uh, during the bidding process, which appears to be a direct violation of state finance law. 
Um, but was that what we also found out is Letitia James has accepted donations from the owner of this company, Russ Maxwell. We called on her to return those donations. She ha- she's gone silent. Uh, additionally, um, when the former lieutenant governor, Brian Benjamin, was indicted, uh, she was very silent. And what we came to find out is that she was actually the number one recipient of campaign cash from Gerald Migdal, the man at the center of that pay-to-play scandal. There's also a second uh, scandal that's really gained traction, and it's the one involving um, – Digital gadgets. This was a family that gave about $300,000 to Kathy Hochul. Uh, There was a $637 million no-bid contract that was awarded to this family for COVID testing kits that was only made possible by the extension of the Emergency Powers Act. And we actually, in the state of New York, paid double the price of what California paid. And additionally, one of the family members actually is now working for the uh, the Hochul campaign. Hmm. And what we're seeing here is the New York state taxpayer is subsidizing her reelection. Now, what could I do as the state attorney general? Number one, we have a public integrity bureau. I could I could file uh, lawsuits. The second thing I could do is work in conjunction with the comptroller's office to investigate state contracts and the use of taxpayer funds. I could also work in conjunction with the federal government where there's issues um, where there might be issues that fall under federal jurisdiction. And then lastly, I want to use the I want to. Uh, fix the Charities Bureau, because I believe we need to be auditing some of these not-for-profits, specifically in New York City, to see exactly where the money's going, because it doesn't look like it's going to the, to use for the things that they're claiming uh, they're supposed to be providing as far as services. Oh, I mean, look, this is just a corrupt state government, is it not? I mean, isn't that the bottom line? And the Attorney General of the state, Letitia James, has done nothing about it. I mean, in a sense, you, all right, Hochul is Hochul, and she's corrupt. Mm-hmm. But the the AG should be the watchdog here, representing the people. Um, I want to get to the criminal issues in a minute, mm-hmm. but th- she's all she does is scream about Donald Trump, who's not on the ballot in New York State. I mean, she she wants Trump's you know, bringing a lawsuit against Trump for real estate values, which, by the way, is what I would call victimless something. It's up to the bankers to determine real estate values. But all this other stuff, she does nothing, nothing. And she's done nothing on crime. Uh, as you say, I've, I looked at your website, putting criminals first, uh, you know, no, uh, no bail, revolving door for violent recidivist criminals. Crime rates have risen across the state. It's a, I mean, you read about it every day in the paper. So right. here, too, I mean, we have a corrupt government in New York that needs to be replaced. Well, that's part of it. And I, look, I'm a political outsider. And what I see is one party control destroying, destroying the state, completely destroying the state. We have a corruption crisis. We have a, uh, a crime crisis. We have a cost of living crisis that's leading to a mass exodus of our friends and our families. And she stands here silently. She is the most political attorney general in the nation. But you know what's of interest to her? As you pointed out, going after the former president, which ironically she did a few days after we had our first public poll showing us an elite. Uh, she's more interested in filing lawsuits against Republican-governed states. She's more interested in calling the NRA a terrorist organization and try to having them judicially dissolved uh, in the run-up to the presidential election of 2020 and freezing their assets. And then that, that portion of the lawsuit was partially dismissed by a Manhattan judge. She was more interested, quite frankly, in taking out the governor of her own party so she could run for governor and actually prejudice the investigation uh, where she claimed that he was engaged in criminal – where she implied he was engaged in criminal activity and she didn't afford him due process. 
And then, you know, it turns out she run, launches a run for governor that lasted about as long as our interview is going to last. <laughs> so her, she has not been focused on the work of the taxpayers of the state of New York. She's been focused on promoting Letitia James. But you know what? When she first ran for city council, she couldn't even get the Democrat endorsement. She had to run on the working family's third party line to win. So, you know, she's really the original solstice. And even this time around, she's accepted that party's nomination after in 2018 when she was running for attorney general, pretended she wanted no affiliation with them. This year she accepts their, their nomination. And in their questionnaire, they say you cannot accept uh, police or correctional union support, nor could you revisit any changes to cashless bail. And we've seen a pattern of when things are corruptions going on, she turns a blind eye to it. She's not focused on the work of the taxpayers of taxpayers of the state of New York. She's focused on political grandstanding. And what's ironic here is regardless of how many, uh, press conferences she holds and how political she is and is always trying to grandstand, she still hasn't responded to a debate invite, and she still hasn't committed to debating me, which is pretty mm -hmm. ironic in this whole thing. Yeah, well, that's what Hochul's doing with Lee Zeldin, too. I mean, they don't want to face up to these issues. Now, what would uh, Michael Henry do as a state AG with respect to bail reform and this incredible problem of recidivist criminals, which really is I mean, right. every day you read the stories in the newspapers right. about these incredible criminal acts, and then they're in, and then they're released right away, and they're back on the street, and they're back killing people, okay? What would you right. do about it, Mike? Sure. Real quick, I'll, I'll run through some of the numbers because they're trying, and the, some in the media are trying to portray this as not being the cause of the crime. Um, look, Letitia James, in 2018, she was a supporter of Cassius Bell. It, recently, she has said she needs to see more data before she'd re revisit any changes. And the problem with more data is more data means she needs to see more victims. And one victim is one victim too many. And we have a situation where people are living in fear as criminals are doing whatever they want, whenever they want, wherever they want, because of this no consequence, no fear mentality that's in place. New York City, there's a rise in major crimes in the last year, 36 percent. Mm. Subway homicides, Subway homicides are at a 25-year high. As a matter of fact, in the last three years, we've had more homicides on the New York City subway than the prior 11 years combined. Mm. Hate crimes are at 41%. Transit system crimes at 49.1%. Nassau County has seen a rise of 34% in major crimes. Rochester has a higher murder rate than the city of Chicago. Mm. Buffalo's murder rate's been on the rise the last three years. Now, what would Michael Henry do? Well, right now as a candidate, I'm actually going to be out in Brooklyn today. I'm, I'm working to get people elected to the state legislature that share my opinion that they need to re repeal cashless bail. Mm. This is not working. If they make amendments to it, it's going to be more convoluted. They have to repeal it. And then if you want to have something in place for these nonviolent offenders, which was how the law was pitched to the general public, a first time nonviolent offender, misdemeanor crimes, then you could put you make the legislature do their work and put something in place that's going to work and work the right way. The second thing. I would do is I would work in conjunction with local district attorneys to make sure they have the resources they need. I've seen a troubling trend throughout the state where, especially in some of our rural, more Republican counties where there are drug trafficking issues on the highways, that there's no communication between the AG's office and there's no utilization of resources, when in the past that was not a partisan issue. I would also uh, work, utilize some of the task, force that they, task forces that they have at the AG's office. Uh, there's many task force, organized crime, insurance industry, and you could also work in conjunction with federal authorities. And then lastly, I have the power to introduce program bills. And I would introduce program bills to the legislature that would put in common sense policies to get this crime crisis under control. Because crime transcends party affiliation and it affects everyone. And what's often lost, lost and forgotten in all of this is the victims.
and their, their families that will never see their loved ones again. And we have to get back to common sense policies here in New York and its transcendent party affiliation in our big cities and our suburban communities and our rural areas. Don't you think we ought to have a governor and a state AG that's pro-cops? Just just a crazy uh, thought on my part, but I just well, thought I'd as, ask as, you. Well, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, look, Letitia James is one of the biggest spewers of anti-police rhetoric. Yep. Uh, she's, against, she's against qualified immunity. Uh, during the 2020 riots, um, she didn't investigate who was behind the riots here in New York City. She investigated the NYPD, and then she sued them. And that really bothers me because I have a ticket mate who's running for lieutenant governor who actually had a kitchen cabinet thrown on her head during those riots when mm. she was serving on the NYPD. Mm. Uh, she also supports a de-escalation bill that makes it nearly impossible for a police officer to use force during an arrest. And I can tell you, my father was a police officer, and early in his career, uh, he spent four weeks in a hospital after saving a baby out of a burning building. Mm. The last thing you want is police officers and first responders tasked with making these split-second life-or-death decisions to waste critical seconds overthinking because they're going to hurt themselves, harm themselves, overthinking, or there's a potential of that, and also the people they save. And they should be focused on doing their job and not focused on hoping that some political grandstander is not looking to come for their badge and their pension. And we have seen the pendulum swing. Every neighborhood I go into, Asian American, Bangladeshi, Latino, white, African American, the number one thing I hear is they want their cops back. Mm. We want our cops to be able to do their job. Mm. And the left, people on the left have gone way too far with this. And there's a lot of people that want the police in the communities doing what they are trained to do. Well, I think you make a great compliment. You make a great team with Lee Zeldin, who was just the best of the best. He's a good friend of mine. I think you're all going to win. I think the cavalry is coming here to New York State. But this Letitia James, she is the worst. She is just the worst. I mean, it would be nice to have a state AG that wants to help the, the safety on the streets instead of helping the criminals who are disrupting this entire place. Anyway, Michael Henry, candidate for New York State Attorney General. You're doing great. Keep up the work. Uh, Maybe we'll talk uh, once before the election. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me at michaelhenry4ag.com. There you go. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick break. (laughs) On the other side of the break, we're going to take a look at what governors around the country are doing to cut taxes, not this state, Not Connecticut, not New Jersey, not California, but there's a whole bunch of red state governors doing a great job. We'll talk to my pal Chris Edwards of the Cato Institute about fiscal policies and what governors ought to be doing to promote jobs and growth. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great to be with you. We bring in my pal Chris Edwards, director of taxes at the Cato Institute and editor of www.downsizinggovernment.org. So, Chris Edwards, we're giving you a second shot. You wouldn't tell us the rankings last week. You flirted with it. But, <laughs> but now you're back to tell us. So uh, it's interesting. The top grade of A goes to Kim Reynolds of Iowa, who, who is really fabulous. Uh, she's a friend of mine. And Chris Sununu in New Hampshire, Pete Ricketts in Nebraska, Brad Little in Idaho, and uh, Doug Ducey in Arizona. So they're, they're, they're cutting taxes. Biden wants to raise taxes. They're holding down spending. Biden wants to spend like crazy for more inflation. The contrast couldn't be greater. That, that's right. Uh, the, uh, the, you know, there's been a huge wave of tax cutting in the states over the last two years. 
budget surpluses uh, have uh, put a lot of Republican governors in a position where they can do major tax reforms. I mean, for example, Kim Reynolds uh, in Iowa, she did some tax reforms in 2018, and she pressed every year to do more tax cuts. And then when surpluses uh, arose over the last year, that was her opportunity, and she took it, and she's put into place a dramatic uh, tax reform, cutting the income tax rate from 9% down to a 3.9% flat tax. These, you know, the smart governors know, Larry, as you know, that the Americans, particularly high-income Americans, are moving from higher tax states to lower tax states. If you look, for example, at the 25 lowest tax states in the country, 20 of them have substantial and consistent net in-migration. People are leaving places like New York. They're moving to places like Florida. Uh, and it's not just warm places. It's also places like South Dakota and New Hampshire that are colder places, but they have very low taxes, and people are consistently moving to those states. Chris Anuno, Chris Anuno uh, in New Hampshire. I know it's cold in New Hampshire in the winter, but he's a very good governor. I know him. Um, really solid guy. I wish he'd run for the Senate, actually, but maybe that's he, uh, You know, he, he's consistently chopped. You know, New Hampshire doesn't have an individual income tax. It does have business taxes, and he's consistently cut those business taxes. New Hampshire also had a 5% tax on uh, interest and dividends, and he's eliminated that. So uh, he's really doing the correct supply-side reforms. And the Fs, the bottom of the list, F, let's see, Tim Waltz, Pennsylvania, no, Tim Waltz, Minnesota, Tom Wolf, Pennsylvania, Pritzker of Illinois, Whitmer of Michigan, my friend Phil Murphy of New Jersey is a good guy, but he's a terrible economist, Kate Brown of Oregon, Gavin Newsom of California, and Jay Inslee of Washington. So they're the crazies. So you can look at this. uh, Let's take New York versus Florida, all right? New York versus Florida. Florida is a low-tax state, although your point on Ron DeSantis could be cutting the corporate tax in Florida. Maybe he'll get around to that. But on spending, for example, we have about the same population, but we spend, we, New York, spends vastly more. Why is this? I think it's fascinating, and I wish uh, residents of New York would wake up. I've looked at the detailed census data. Florida now has slightly more residents than New York State, as you may know, I think 21 million to 20 million. But if you look at census data, New York State and local governments spend 88 percent more than governments in Florida. And it's not just because New York is a high-cost place. If you look at the actual number of government workers, New York State has 38 percent more government workers in Florida. And it's on, it's on the, you know, the school bureaucracy is bigger, the welfare bureaucracy is bigger, the highway bureaucracy is bigger. Across the board, there is massive bloat in the New York government. Partly it's because, you know, New York, uh, most of the workforce is unionized to the government workforce in Florida. It's not. Uh, but, you know, I really wish New York residents would wake up and, and, you know, demand, you know, you know, value for money for the high taxes they're paying. Well, that's the thing. So they're spending all this welfare. In fact, there's fewer people, more welfare. I'm just calling it all welfare. But the tax burdens are enormous. So I I think, Chris, you you make the case that that money that's being spent on all this welfare stuff, and I'm going to just guess that there's no workfare or work requirements uh, for able-bodied people. I'm just going to guess that. But, you know, you, you have to dangle the tax cut would be the reward 
for a sharp spending cut, Penn. No, that, that's exactly right. There's, you know, because states have to balance their budgets, I mean, I think a reform-minded governor in New York could say, hey, look, uh, you know, we're going to cut out some of this bloat, but the reward will be everyone gets, you know, across-the-board income tax cut or something like that. Yeah, man, look, think think of it this way. What Reagan said, you know, the best welfare program is a good-paying job. So if you promote tax incentives to build new businesses, create new jobs, that's the welfare program that you want. Not just spending, just cut taxes and let the private sector generate the best-paying jobs. People will be better off. Everybody will be better off. Absolutely. I'm really, you know, New York makes me sad. I drive through New York a lot. And outside of Manhattan and Albany, people are leaving. Syracuse and Buffalo and Binghamton. It's really sad. Those cities should be thriving. They're centrally located. It's a beautiful state. I think state state, um, policymakers are really doing a disservice, especially to those uh, the parts of New York that are outside uh, where all the elite live in Manhattan, frankly. I'll give you one really startling comparison, New York versus Florida. New York's um, K-12 schools have 470,000 employees. Florida schools have 360,000 employees, a lot less. But Florida schools do better in all these um, um, state comparison rankings of the schools. So New Yorkers are paying more. They're getting lower value. Yes, sir. Well, Lee Zeldin's going to fix that as governor. Chris Edwards of Cato, thank you, buddy. Appreciate it very much. Folks, we're going to take a quick break. On the other side of the break, we're going to talk about the New Testament and capitalism with Robert Sirko. Hi, it's Ernie Anastas. You know, your thoughts can affect how you feel, and how you feel can impact your thoughts. Addressing your mind and body connection is the key to improving your overall wellness. Bergen Newbridge Medical Center is the largest hospital in New Jersey, providing comprehensive, equitable, compassionate, and high-quality emergency inpatient and outpatient medical care, plus mental health services and substance use disorder treatment. The Bergen Newbridge team can address your total health needs in one convenient location. Call 201-225-7130 for an appointment or newbridgehealth.org. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So we're going to talk to Reverend Robert Sirico, Father Sirico, who was a Roman Catholic priest. He's co-founder of the free market-oriented Acton Institute. He's an old friend of mine, and he has a new book out called The Economics of the Parables. God, I love that. The New Testament Parables. I hope the economics of the parables are good. Uh, Father Sirico, first of all, thank you for coming on. It's been a while. I I just want to, before we dig into your book, just, you know, we're living in a period right now where these secular progressives and socialists basically hate God and hate religion and want all of it out of our lives, schools, you know, churches, whatever. Their God is the state. Their God is government. Their God is central planning. And it seems to me, Father Sirico, that is a big, big, big problem for the soul of this country. It's an enormous challenge and a great change in our culture in many respects. I mean, the young people, especially all the polling indicate, not just that they don't believe in God, but that they have disaffiliated from Mm. uh, religious institutions. So I think it bespeaks a certain skepticism on the part of institutions generally and religious institutions in particular. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a, you know, there's a battle for the soul of this country. And um, yeah. the Judeo-Christian and, heritage has always been so important, you know, to the American idea and the American ideal. And, and the, the inspiration behind our institutions, really. Mm. The division of power, you know, the, the, the very idea that uh, the state is not God. Uh, you know, comes from the Judeo-Christian culture, comes from the Old Testament and the New Testament. And to lose that uh, kind of concentrates all power and authority in the political apparatus. That's very dangerous. So, Father Strico, when I go to Mass tonight in my little parish in Connecticut, can I rest assured that Lord Jesus is really a supply cider? <laughs> I think he what are the parables? Beyond. Tell us about your parables. Well, you know, um, economics is, only comes into existence um, because of scarcity. So, of course, God can't be considered uh, an economist because he lives in eternity. He lives, uh, if things weren't scarce, we wouldn't have economics, right? But because we live in this real world where things are scarce, when Jesus tells the stories of the parables, he uses examples that have economic implications, even if that's not the goal of the parable. And what I did here was just take uh, 13 parables, the more obvious ones that have economic dimensions to them, like the prodigal son, which is largely a uh, discussion of uh, inheritance dispute, or the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is the antithesis of the welfare state, even if some religious leaders use it as an example of and a model for the welfare state. What about um, Matthew 25? That... Oh, the ta- <laughs> Everybody asks about the talents because people get rankled. They think there's been some injustice done to the men who come at the end of the day. Remember that this is the story where the uh, I'm sorry. This is the story where um, the the master entrusts to the talent mm-hmm. to, to his servants various talents, and the one at the end doesn't lose the money. This is interesting about this story, but he doesn't increase it. He's not productive with it. And I think the key to that there are two keys to understanding it. One at the beginning, one at the end. The first is that the master gives to each according to his ability. That's what the scripture says. So these men could do what the master hoped they would do. They could be productive. They had the capacity to do it. But at the end, we see the one who has only the one talent he'd hidden says to the master, I knew you were a cruel man, gathering where you have not scattered and uh, basically exploiting the work of others. Who does that sound like to you? I mean, that's modern-day socialism. Right, exactly, uh, exactly. This, this guy is fearful, which is, of course, antithetical to entrepreneurs in a market economy because they have to be courageous. They have to be willing to risk in a prudent way to make a profit. But they also see, as this servant does, that the master is exploitative, that productivity mm. exploits you. You have gathered where you have not scattered. You have reaped where you have not sown. Well, so, uh, Jesus, really, Jesus uh, teaches repeatedly about caring for the poor. Very, very yes. important. Okay. But very personally. Your, your point down through the years has been that, you know, the best care for the poor 
is a vibrant free market economy. It's not the socialist state planning totalitarian economy. And I think to some extent, Father, that's a, a thought that needs to be reborn, reinvigorated, if you will. I mean, we want to care for the poor. We want to care for the least among us. What you do for the least among us, you do for me. But um, there are ways, you know, socialism won't deliver the goods. Free market capitalism will. And when I think of you and I think of the work of the Acton Institute, that's kind of what I think about, that you're saying freedom, free markets will do for the poor what the state and communism will not. Right. Uh, there are actually two messages, and that's one of them. So when we talk about poverty, we're talking about productivity because the antithesis of poverty is abundance, right? And so we have to find some mechanism. It's not just enough to wish that the poor had bread. You have to know how to make a bakery, mm. <laughs> how to build a bakery. So that's the one thing. Uh, on, the, on the level of material sustenance, a free economy is more productive and therefore people rise. But there's a second part that's very important, and that is that the political apparatus, the welfare state, the bureaucracies, actually distance us from the poor. So that in in a free society, when people give to the poor, when they are inspired to give to the poor, it's not just the poor that benefits from that. It's also the person who's giving, because there's a relationship that is established at some level. And in this sense, people mistake Christianity for socialism, because I can't tell you, Larry, how many times people will say to me, well, isn't Christianity socialist because it teaches us to be generous and to share our wealth. And the, the, the answer I've come up with, I found it in uh, Winston Churchill. He said, the socialism of the early Christians said that all that I have is yours. Hmm. Hmm. The socialism of today says all that you have is mine. It's mine. Oh, you know, that's great. That's terrific. One, one is inspired to share with other people who are in need, and the other is mandated. And this creates a barrier to human bonding, to human community. Do the parables also, I mean, another point here, uh, current society, current culture is very difficult, very hostile, very aggressive, very punishing, you know, attacking, personal attacks and so forth. It just seems to me that the teachings of Christ in the parables and, and elsewhere throughout the New Testament teaches um, relationships and civility and respect. And these are things yeah. that I fear, you know, our great country is losing, at least at the moment, at least temporarily. I think we today, for a variety of reasons, both technological and uh, political, um, are disrespecting people we disagree with. Right. It, it's one thing to say you and I disagree. You know, Larry, just make them as a great shot, but I'm sure if we sat down long enough, <laughs> uh, we'd find some things we don't agree on. Possibly. Uh, but does that have to dissolve friendship? Does mm. that have to dissolve uh, personal respect for one another? I long for those days of Bill Buckley and the firing line where he could have all kinds of people on the program and yet be genial and winsome in his discussions and debates with them. That's yeah. gone. That's exactly what I was thinking about. Look, I, um, Bill and Pat Buckley were very dear friends yes. of um, myself and my saintly wife, Judy. I, I was honored uh, a week or two ago with the Buckley, William F. Buckley Prize. We did it at the Reagan Library. And when I spoke 
Father Strico. When I spoke, I spoke about how beautifully he handled himself with civility, with humor, with self-deprecating humor. And that's a lesson for all of us to learn or relearn uh, in these uh, harsher times, I'll call them. And I think, you know, I mean, you're the expert on the New Testament. I'm not. Uh, I'm a little poor sinner myself, but I do go to church. And, you know, the, the, I mean, I, 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 th- I think Jesus teaches that. I think sure. I think that that's, you know, part of his message. And, it's you know, you can find it in the Sermon on the Mount. And that's something we should all think about. This, the thing, the secret of the gospel is that it inspires us to go beyond ourselves. It calls us to a higher vision of the dignity of human life, the recognition that each person, even, or maybe I should say, especially the sinner, mm. Uh, mm. Is, is beloved by God and is sought because of their, the great value of their immortal soul. So, Father, Reverend Robert Sirico, the name of the book is The Economics of the Parable. When I go to Mass tonight, I'm going to think about Jesus as a supply cider. And, folks, go out and buy the book. It's going to be terrific stuff. I've known Robert Strico for many years. Thank you, Father. We appreciate it very much. Give the book to your preacher. (laughs) Will do. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick break. And um, on the other side of the break, we're going to talk to my friend Andy McCarthy, the smartest uh, prosecutor, former prosecutor. What is going on with the FBI? The FBI right now looks like the worst political weapon. J. Edgar Hoover's times are back. This is not a good story. And the FBI has got to be put on trial and re-regulated. Anyway, Andrew McCarthy coming up on Larry Kudlow. Stick around. We'll be right back. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. All right, welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're bringing in my great friend, Andrew McCarthy. Andy McCarthy, former district U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, contributing editor of National Review, uh, Fox News contributor. Um, Let's see, his latest book is called The Ball of Collusion, The Plot to Rig an Election and Destroy a Presidency. Andy McCarthy, welcome back. Um, I wanted to talk to you about this Op-ed piece you ran, uh, utter proof the FBI framed Trump and shielded Hunter Biden. And, I mean, some of the facts in this that that keep coming out, I guess from Durham and other sources, the Durham stuff and other sources. I mean, at one point, (laughs) at one point, it it sounds to me like the FBI was going to bribe this jerk Christopher Steele with a million dollars if he could come up with proof of some of these crazy anti-Trump claims regarding Russia and peccadilloes in Moscow. And um, even he couldn't get it done then. But the point is, what is the FBI doing? And as we look at this more generally, and I think you're going to get a Republican Congress, Andy, uh, don't we have to just put the FBI on trial here or at least begin to re-regulate it and make some important changes from the top on down? Yeah, I, I really think so, Larry. I also think, though, that uh, my hat's off to John Durham, the special counsel who's uh, trying this case that's ongoing now, because I think, you know, he's got a powerful incentive in his case to try to uh, conceal some of this misconduct. And what he's instead done is been kind of an agent of sunshine here. It's, you know, he's laying out uh, all of these details 
uh, about the FBI in a very transparent way, even though it's it's not going to help him make his case. It's probably going to infuriate the jury uh, at the FBI. But, uh, you know, you're quite right. The, the uh, FBI is right now a very troubled institution. I have some ideas about why I think that is, but, you know, whether I'm right or wrong about those, it's obvious that they need uh, a checkup and it's got to be done by Congress. It's got to be out in the open and it's got to be, uh, it's got to be aggressive. Um, and uh, boy, we need a, you know, we really need a top flight federal law enforcement agency that the country can rely on and trust. And right now they've lost that. Yeah. I mean, these are the G men. They're supposed to, you know, make us safe and, Solve these crimes. Why not? Why not make Durham the director of the FBI? Yeah, well, I wouldn't hold my breath waiting for Biden to make <laughs> Durham the, the, the well, FBI. But I'll, I'll say, I'll say this, Larry. It's not. It, it is not unusual for um, the federal government and the intelligence agencies to to pay informants for information which they often have to get at at great risk to themselves. So it's you know these kind of arrangements are not um, unprecedented. The thing is. The FISA court, in order to get a warrant to to uh, monitor somebody, because it's all classified, because you know there's never any discovery that's given to the defense or anything like that, like happens in the in the criminal system, they have a higher obligation. The bureau and the Justice Department do when they go to the FISA court to make sure the information they give the judges is verified mm. before they give it to them. So the real problem, I think, with offering this guy Steele a million dollars is that's tantamount to saying you've made a lot of allegations here, but you haven't proved anything. And what we need you to do is prove it. And it turned out he couldn't prove it, and they never had to pay the money, but they took the information to the court anyway. Mm. So if you're offering to pay for it, that's you're basically confessing that it's not corroborated and federal law requires them to verify the information before they go to the FISA court, which they did not once, not twice, not three times, but four times, huh. including like seven or eight months into Trump's presidency. So you write on this point, you write, not only did the FBI fail to disclose to the Justice Department and the court, I think you mean the FISA court here, that right, this uh, Danchenko, who was the other agent involved, had contradicted Steele's claims. The Bureau told the court it had interviewed Danchenko to further corroborate Steele's reporting, which actually had never been corroborated. In so doing, the Bureau elaborated it found Danchenko to be truthful and cooperative. But the fact remains Steele's claims were sheer nonsense. Now, this is crazy stuff, but this is the FBI campaigning against Donald Trump. All right, I, I'm going to look at it. I, I'm not talking presidential yes. politics, 2024, anything like that. I'm going back to whenever this was, 2016, 2017, and so forth. That's what they're doing. Why is the FBI doing that? Why is the FBI getting involved in politics, for heaven's sakes? It's like they're choosing their candidates and then doing everything they can uh, to slaughter one and protect another. Yeah, well, you know, we don't have to speculate about this, Larry, because there have been voluminous reports that were cranked out by the Justice Department's Inspector General, Michael Horowitz, mm. who found that there was rampant political bias in the upper hierarchy of the FBI uh, and with respect to a lot of people who uh, were involved in these investigations. 
And, you know, he was kind of gentle with the Bureau on the score. He, he acknowledged all this evidence because how could you not? I mean, it was written down in text messages and the like, uh, a monstrous de- depiction of Trump. And what Horowitz ended up saying was, you know, look, this is all very bad and it really undermines their credibility. But we can't say that there's any single uh, investigative decision that they made that we can attribute wholly to political bias. Hmm. But I, I think that when people read what what he put out, he's you know, he's saying, I can't read their mind. I don't know exactly why they did what they did. And they may have had some legitimate reasons. But the fact remains, there was rampant political bias. And what do we find out? They did things that they would never do in other cases hmm. because they were hoping to nail Trump. That's the thing. That's the thing. I mean, the pattern of bias is very, very clear. Uh, Andy, in the last uh, minute plus, uh, can you update us on the Mar-a-Lago story and where that stands? So this week, Larry, the uh, Trump tried to get the Supreme Court to intervene. Um, There was no way they were going to do that because the Justice Department has appealed to the intermediate court, the, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals in Florida, uh, which is now taking the case on an expedited basis. So bottom line is the Justice Department is trying to undo the special counsel process. Mm. They have already managed to undo half of that. They've gotten the classified documents back in the sense that they can use them now uh, in their investigation. So, uh, you know, I think the classified documents aspect of the investigation is obviously the most serious one. And, you know, Larry, it's a lot more serious than any of the theater we saw with the uh the january 6th commission mm. or committee mm. this week the uh, you know that's a real live criminal investigation there you think there's going to be a pre-election indictment i don't uh you know the justice department tries to honor the 60-day rule where they don't do anything public in mm. the in the days right before that goes but you remember this that goes back to the Remember the indictment of Casper Weinberger yes. like four days before the 92? Yep. So ever since then, they've tried to crack down on that stuff. Um, so I don't think anything will happen before the election. Uh, be very interesting to see what happens after the election, particularly if the Republicans, as expected, win, uh, because the Justice Department's going to have a tougher time once Republicans are holding yep. the gavel in the Judiciary Committee. Yep. I got it. All right. Andy McCarthy, thank you for the update. We not a, we have got to reform the FBI. It's this story is just I'm with it's, you. It's out of hand. I mean, it's just. Yep. And it, you know what? Just as a last thought in a few seconds. Crime is a big issue. All right. It's a big issue across the country. And here you've got the leading federal crime fighting agency involved in what amounts to their own political scandals. And that's just not where you want to be, Andy McCarthy. No, that's right. You want to you want to trust these guys that they're above politics right? Uh, and that they check that stuff at the door when they do their job. And that was always the Bureau's reputation to the last 10 years or so. But they really lost it. All right. Andrew McCarthy, we appreciate it very much. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to take a quick break here. And the other side of the break, we're going to do some stock market work and some more economic work and some more inflation work. Not necessarily a happy story, but there is always a way out. The cavalry is coming. I'm Kudlow. We'll be back. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great pleasure to be with you, as always. 
During the week, please uh, tune us in, Fox Business Network. The name of the show is Cudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. every day. If you can't make it at 4, just text your favorite 9-year-old who will teach you how to DVR the show. You'll never miss a thing. Right here, you can get us on the Internet, live streaming, LarryCudlowShow.com, all across the country, around the world, and throughout the solar system. All right, we're going to do some stock market and economic work. Very strange week in stocks. The Dow was up. The other indexes were down. The CPI numbers were terrible. Actually, retail sales weren't any good either. They were flat. And um, I would also say one thing that was maybe missed a little bit uh, yesterday, but the Michigan sentiment survey came out, and inflation expectations have gone up. All right, they were 4.7% in September. And they moved up to 5.1% in October. And actually five-year, this is the one year, and then the five-year expectations went up too. So we got ourselves an inflation problem. And the question is, what's it going to mean for stocks in the economy? We have Nancy Tangler, CEO, Chief Investment Officer of Laffer Tangler Investments. And we have Mike Ozanian, Assistant Managing Editor of Forbes Media and co-host of Forbes Sports Money on the S Network. And, um, Nancy, you know what's going to happen here. Just one minute. One minute. Mike Ozanian. It's one-to-one. Yankees and uh, Guardians and Cleveland Indians. I'm sorry, old school. What's your outlook, buddy? Oh, I'm very positive. Uh, <laughs> I think, yeah, it's, look, it's, it's best, best out of three. And, uh, and, and the best player in baseball hasn't gotten a hit yet. Yeah. He's looked terrible. Yeah. So uh, um, on that front, I, I think Judge will start it, and it'll be fine. And their starting pitching has been good. So you get good pitching, Judge turns it around. It's, I think we're in good shape. Look, last time you and I were talking, I think the Yankees, or maybe two times ago, the Yankees were in that horrendous slump. Right. Uh, right. You know, this is such a – baseball is so random. You know, you look at the other sports, it's not unusual for a team to have a 700 winning percentage, mm. 750 winning – baseball, you play 600% winning baseball, that's fantastic. Mm. These games are – look at the Padres ahead of the Dodgers, two games to one. I love that. You know, it's – it's uh, short series, very random. But our pitching's good, so I'm very confident. And yeah. I, think, I think Judge turns it around. Judge will unwind. I mean, he had a pressure cooker there the last month, and he'll, he'll unwind. Oh. I think you're right about that. Nancy, um, I want to go to you. I had uh, the great Art Laffer on at the top of the show, and we're talking about the inflation problem. And Art made, you know, some very important points, but the Fed is still too loose. Even though rates have gone up, there's a lot of excess money sloshing around. Their balance sheet has not wound down very much at all. And Interest rates, Art believes that market rates are going to have to get up to around 10% to get into a real rate situation that would be consistent with declining inflation. And, of course, we know they're nowhere near that. The the 10 years hovering around uh, 4%. And I know the Fed funds rate is going to go up 75 and 75 in November, December, Nancy. I think they should go up a full point, but whatever. Uh, you know, Art really feels if you if the Fed unlocked rates, stopped trying to control the bond market, they would adjust upward, and that would get us back on a real path towards lower inflation. And you know, getting back to that two percent inflation target. What you think about all that, Nancy Tangler? I heard the interview, Larry. Um, thank you. And uh, I just, but before I answer, I want to ease your soul on the question of whether or not Jesus was a supply sider. <laughs> 
I've got a verse from Ecclesiastes 10, 2. It says, a wise, man heart, a wise man's heart directs him toward the right, but the foolish man's heart directs him toward the left. Oh, God, that's fabulous. <laughs> leave it there. That's fabulous. Can you, t- can you text me that or something? I will. Or email uh, me or mother, whatever. I love that. My, I love I'm that. I'm going to call my favorite nine-year-old and have them uh, text it to you. Um, yeah. <laughs> I love it. So I love – and I also love being on with Mike. Hello, Mike. Um, Hi, Nancy. I think we've talked about – I think we talked about this about a year and a half ago um, uh, when I was on your radio show, actually. And Jeremy Siegel, who who is a big um, M2 focused fan as it relates to inflation um, had had produced a chart that showed the spread between inflation and M2 growth was at a 150 year peak. And so in his view, we had to get 20 percent inflation no matter what over some period of time. And um, I think I think I at the time send you the chart, but I can also resend it. It's just fascinating. And then you've got, you know, Fed Governor Mester saying, well, I don't really think uh, M2 has any impact on inflation. So there's there's a lot of people that are making decisions um, that maybe don't necessarily understand how the markets work. Uh, and and so I'll, I'll leave it at that because I've been very critical of the Fed. But I, I don't know if we have to get to 10 percent, Larry, but I think, you know, the Fed is now talking about being front end front end loading the rate hikes. But indeed, that is exactly the opposite of what they've done. And so they've they've um, they've waited too long. And that's one of the troubling things, because this inflation is getting stickier and and it will remain persistent. We're going to see oil prices rise again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's going to you know, keep inflation at, at high levels. We think we hit peak in in June, but it's still going to be high. And so I think Art's right that we, we need to see um, higher rates and we need to see them move forward on uh, quantitative tightening. Uh, it's it's increasing the volatility in the bond market, but I think at the moment, um, you know, we have enough liquidity, and and they just need to stop talking mm-hmm. and just get about their business because mm-hmm. they're the, the markets are roiled because they they've been wrong at every turning point starting in October of 2018. So what you've got in the short term is the algos just driving market volatility uh, too high, and it's it's difficult for um, for many people who are sitting on the sidelines with 401ks. It's not the rich people that are getting hurt, as we always know. Mm. It's the, the folks who work for a living. And that's why I think this needs to get done sooner rather than later. Yeah, I'm with you. Mike Ozanian, you know, the oddest thing was the CPI report comes out, and it was a lousy report. Uh, by the way, I just want to insert, if you follow the Cleveland Fed uh, now-cast inflation indicator, uh, they're looking for a CPI in November um, – that will be 0.8 for the month. And, mm. I, and I suspect, I, I don't know exactly, but I suspect that's because uh, gasoline prices stopped falling. I think that's mm. probably going to be part of it. But in any case, Mike, you had this bizarre CPI comes out, it's a bad number. The market goes down 500, uh, but then it comes back 800 on the day um, with this gigantic. So, so it's like unprecedented volatility. And I'm not sure I know how to read that because I would not have bought the stock market, on, certainly on the basis of that CPI information. Maybe there's other stuff, although I couldn't find it. But this volatility just strikes me as getting worse. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I couldn't find anything either. The only thing I would say is 
there's been a few instances like that over the past several months where there's been an inflation report uh, or a jobs report that uh, you would have thought would have sent the market in one direction and, you know, it sent it went in another direction. But uh, on the macro sense, uh, there's nothing positive. Uh, you know, you got real real retail sales down four in the last uh, five month uh, quarters. You've you've got the other thing that I looked at uh, when I when I was trying to figure out why the market went up was credit spreads actually widen. So you've got widening credit spreads. Now that would have sent an alarm to me on the negative side in tor- in terms of corporate earnings, but apparently it didn't. But that's the reality. It's widened and. Productivity, and I like Nancy. I cheated a little bit and listened to Art too because I love listening to what he has to say. So you know, Art made the the, the great point about the necessity of productivity increasing, and and what that would do to be able to pick up some of the excess uh, money supply. But productivity has been down for the last five quarters. Mm. You've got nothing good there, and you touched on the Michigan sentiment, uh, which I look at too. But I, I really also like to focus on small businesses, uh, and, and the small business indicators are terrible. Uh, Edyard Denny, who I like to follow, summed it up this way. He said, small businesses have never been as depressed. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, you know I, I don't see it. And then you, you look outside of the U.S., and you've got big problems in China in the real estate area and default on loans. I, I just you know, I, I love to be an optimist. I, I just don't see really anything on a macro sense here or abroad being positive about. Yeah, I agree. It's a tough situation. I don't think it's going to last forever because um, I do think the elections are going to be quite favorable. And I do think a lot of new policies or at least reversal of bad policies will come. But it's not going to be easy. You know, I had, no, Sen- I, I had Senator no. Thune on, uh, who's done a great job, in my opinion, particularly in recent years, solid conservative, free market guy. But the GOP can take the Congress, uh, both the House and the Senate. They will take the gavels around, let's see, January 3rd, I think. But they're going to be in a crisis mode, uh, you know, with essentially a high inflation recession. I mean, and they're going to have to move fast. I mean – Art, you know, Nancy, Art was trying to think, we were both trying to think of the famous uh, Kemp Stockman memo. It was actually the Dunkirk memo. It came to me, oh. came to me later. I'm, I'm old and infirm, but it did come to me, the <laughs> Dunkirk memo. But they're going to need something like that. Art wants us to pen something for them, give them a draft. But the point is they're going to have a very bad situation, the Republicans, and they're going to have to, you know, move fast and decisively on key issues, particularly spending and regulating and energy. Yeah, I, I think I think energy is is I mean, if, if they solve energy, a lot of this will take care of itself, in my view. I mean, I I, I thought the uh, opinion piece by a Muhammad Aliya, huh? Uh huh. I don't know how to say it exactly. Al-Arian. But, um, Al-Arian. No, no, it's no, it's a uh, Aliya Haya. It's, oh, uh, he's a fellow oh. at Harvard. He wrote a great piece on energy and how the Biden administration is scapegoating. And what scapegoating does is it, it, it denies and poisons the democratic process. Hmm. And his, his final close was, if America wants to prevent another shock in world energy markets, it should begin producing more oil. It really is that simple. Huh. And I, you know, we went from energy independent and in your administration, that's what I call it, 
<laughs> you call them the Bidens. I call the Trump administration your administration. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and 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 we shut it down. And so you've got, you know, I, I was driving to uh, home from Tahoe last week, $8.29 a gallon in California. Wow. It, it's not sustainable. Wow. And this notion that we're going to go groveling to companies that produce dirty oil mm. uh, and and look for that um, as a solution is absurd on the, just the face of it. So I think the market is beginning to, to, to assume that we're going to see a Republican sweep. Uh, and, you know, I'm looking at some of Dan Clifton's, um, yes, his yes. portfolios. Yeah. yeah. And and I think that will be a positive catalyst for the market. But like Mike, I, I feel like I'm living the 70s all over again without bell bottoms. Not- I didn't really think much about the 70s when I was growing up in them. And I, I don't like turning every corner and seeing bad news or just insanity. Um, and so I'm hopeful that, that the, the administration will be put in check and we'll have divided government and then our friends in Congress uh, that they will move quickly. I think you should pen something with Dr. Laffer. All right, let's take a quick uh, break. Nancy Tangler, uh, CEO and Chief Investment Officer, Laffer Tangler Investments, Mike Ozanian, Forbes Media and uh, Sports Money on Yes Network. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back with much more. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking stocks with Nancy Tangler of Laffer Tangler Investments, which, by the way, is a five-star Morningstar rating, and Mike Ozanian, Assistant Managing Editor, Forbes Media, and co-host of Forbes Sports Money on Yes Network, uh, which is a terrific show. Yes Network is a very good network for sports-minded people anyway. Um, Mike, begin with you. In this difficult situation, uh, what does an investor do to be safe and or positioned for the future that might be a better future? How do you see this? I got two picks. My first one's the safer one. I like a uh, the Energy Select Sector Spider Fund, ticker mm-hmm. symbol XLE. Mm-hmm. Its two biggest holdings are ExxonMobil and Chevron. I've loved Chevron for a long time. Has a three and a half percent yield, but they also own like pipeline and terminal con- companies like Kinder Morgan. Mm-hmm. I think I think it's a great spider own. And then I've got a turnaround company that really goes more to my palate than it does towards financials. Uh, Krispy Kreme, not just because oh. they give away donuts on Halloween. I know they've had some financial <laughs> problems. The stock's down a lot. But I was reading an article when I was doing research on it, and there was a guy in uh, uh, Connecticut, uh, in Massachusetts, and he Googled the closest Krispy Kreme, and it happened to be in Connecticut. <laughs> well, do you know what? He took his family and actually flew his family. Uh, you know, not far, like 75 miles to get a bunch of Krispy Kreme. And, I, and I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> if there's such an affinity, if the brand is so strong and it has that kind of a following, they, they've got to be able to turn it around, Larry. And, I, and I'm willing to help. How is the um, – on the Krispy Kreme pick, how's the cholesterol story there? Terrible, you know, but when I'm watching these playoff games, I need that nervous food to eat. So, you know, cholesterol goes out the window. By the way, uh, you mentioned Chevron. Um, Mike Worth is the CEO of Chevron. He's a very fine CEO. He's a good person, but he's a very fine CEO. I just wanted to add that. Uh, He's a friend of mine. Nancy Tengler, how would you approach this difficult period? Well, so um, not with Krispy Kremes, Mike. Um, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, now you can finally buy bonds again. We had said in August of 2020 that bonds were riskier than stocks. So we're mm-hmm. building short ladders, corporate, muni, and uh, we're adding in treasuries for, for our clients. Mm-hmm. 
So that that's one solution, um, but it's not it's not a growth solution. And so, as you know, Larry, I've been managing dividend growth portfolios since the mid nineteen eighties with Tony Spare, mm-hmm. and um, it's it's not a fad for us. I, I think now is a, a perfect time to own a strategy that's focused on dividend growth, not just not the highest yielding stocks. That's next quintile down, the second quintile, which tends to outperform. Uh, over any time period. So so we've been adding to names uh, in our portfolio that that have reliable dividend growth because management set dividends as a portion of long-term sustainable earnings power. So I like uh, many names in the energy space as well. We own Chevron, but EOG Resources is an interesting Mm. name, gives you some natural gas exposure, and 98% of the reserves are, of their reserves are in the U.S., $3 $3 dividend, and they've paid out uh, another 580 in special dividends on a trailing one-year basis. Um, utility, I, I'm sorry, REITs have gotten hit, but we, we like uh, the reliable digital uh, public stores, storage unit um, company. They sign up about half of their um, customers without any human contact, and they just paid out a $13 special dividend. So these companies are, you know, preserving cash flow because they have pricing power and they're returning it uh, to the shareholder. And, and we like that a lot. And, and there's, I could go on, but there's plenty of, of uh, ways you can buy ETFs, um, dividend aristocrats with companies that grow the dividend as well. Do you, did I hear you think energy prices going back up? I do. Yeah. Yep. Mike, do you? No question. No question about it. Uh, I know the dollar has been very strong, uh, but I, I do. And, you know, I just, big reason is I, I don't believe there's been a time in history where once inflation has gotten above 5%, it's come back down again without the Fed funds rate going over the CPI. Yes. Now, CPI is like 8, 8.2, something yes. like that. So, you know, we, we haven't had that blood in the street moment yet, as far as I'm concerned, mm-hmm. uh, in, in dealing with inflation. And, and we're going to have to have that. And I think it's going to uh, impact energy prices. Well, that was one of Art Laffer's points, that you, you're just not going to solve this inflation with deep negative rates. And it's something that I've been looking right. at. So the, the 10-year, let's see, on my sheets, the 10-year closed at 4.01, whatever. Call the ten-year four percent. Now it's had a hell of a move, from about a buck and a half to four in the last whatever eighteen months. But gee whiz, um, these inflation numbers are hovering around seven eight percent. I mean, you could go look at the core inflation. You could look at the median CPI from the Cleveland Fed. You're still at seven percent. So, first of all, how can a three and a half or let's say a four or four and a half percent Fed funds rate be adequate? But more than that, Nancy Tangler, how can a four percent bond be? adequate if you're going to run a 7% sticky inflation rate. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right about that, Larry. And we've talked about that, that real rates have been um, the, the real story. I, I think some of it gets solved with, with uh, some of the marginal parts of inflation coming down. Like, let's look at housing core part of CPI, it's 42%. And, you know, we've got the BLS or the Bureau of Labor Statistics you know, gauging what they think owner equivalent rent is based on where rents were. Well, rents are now coming down. So I think you're going to start to see some relief in some places like that. But when you have an administration that has depleted the the strategic petroleum reserve, uh, they are going to have to replenish that. And so to Mike's point, I agree. I think we're going to see higher uh, energy costs. And at, at least on a psychological basis, 
that's really what drives people's view about inflation. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think we saw inflation expectations go up. Because I, like you, noted that that was the the most interesting part of the economic numbers that were reported yesterday. You know, Mike, uh, just a few moments, but um, to your point about blood in the streets, there are going to be dead bodies emerging. We don't know who they are and where they are. But it's inevitable. You, you can't go from 10 percent inflation to two without some dead bodies. Anyway, we're running out of time. I'm awful sorry. Nancy Tengler, uh, Mike Ozanian, the best of the best. I'm Kudlow. We're going to talk money and politics next up with Liz Peake and Steve Moore. You don't want to miss it. This is about inflation and the election and the cavalry is coming. I'm Kudlow. Please stick around. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to talk money and politics with Liz Peake, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist, and Steve Moore, Freedom Works Committee to Unleash Prosperity, and his latest book, Govzilla. Govzilla. Um, so welcome back, kids. Steve Moore, uh, If you're, first of all, are you there? Hello? All right, because, you know, I always like to check to see if you're there. Um, I want to begin with this thought that uh, I mentioned on the TV last night and opening opening this morning, that uh, the polls are telling me inflation is by far the number one issue, and the inflation reports are getting worse, not better. The promise of lower inflation is not panning out, and therefore – my argument is that in the last 25 days of the campaign or whatever we have left, that Republicans must keep Biden inflation as the number one issue on the campaign. Inflation is ripping the country apart. It's ripping households apart. It's ripping budgets apart. Uh, it's ripping food and groceries. Real wages are falling. And that all these Democrats who voted for these big spending bills last year and this year must be held to account on the topic of inflation. Let's not make this any harder than it needs to be. It is the vulnerability of the Democratic Party and the Biden Democrats. That is my point. Biden's inflation is the issue, Steve Moore. What do you think? Well, certainly if you go back to 1980, um, it was clearly what was the undoing of Jimmy Carter and why you know Reagan won a, what, 45-state landslide against an incumbent president. Uh, inflation is a killer for families. And so I agree with you um, that inf- – I, well, the one thing maybe Liz can break this tie. I mean, crime is also a pretty big issue in a lot of states as well. But, but I, I would concentrate on those two issues. I want to make one other que- quick point about your point about inflation. I think it's important for Republicans to connect the dots that mm. uh, you put it really well a couple of weeks ago on the show where you said um, that Biden inherited a pro-growth, low inflation right. economy, and he's turned it into a high inflation, anti-growth economy. I think that's a really good way to put it. Um, but you've got to connect that this, this inflation didn't happen by accident. Mm-hmm. It wasn't in the cards. It was because Biden and the Democrats voted for and approved $4 trillion of spending, $4 trillion of new debt, and essentially $4 trillion of more money printing. And the, uh, you know, the chain reaction of that has been uh, the high inflation that is going to be with us. I agree with you for a long time to come until we bring this spending down. You know, Liz, I I think that connecting the dots is important. I, I think the key bills were the emergency relief bill in March of 21, uh, also, the um, 
the downsized version of Build Back Better, which they call the Inflation Reduction Bill. And I probably would add to that the student loan cancellation, which is very unpopular for a whole bunch of reasons, uh, you know, may cost up to a trillion dollars. But I understand the crime issue. And, And by the way, there's, you know, other issues, crime, the border, drugs, schools. But it's funny when you look, we were looking last night on the show at the Gallup poll and um, inflation slash economy by far, uh, by far the biggest issue, like 40 percent crime came in. And this is nationwide, but crime came in at five or six percent. Underneath crime was abortion and underneath abortion was global warming. I mean, I think this whole election is now in, in light of the news on inflation and how it's ripping apart families and budgets and wages and so forth. It is the number one issue. And I also think, Liz, it's the most vulnerable point the Democrats have because all these senators voted for these bills. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I agree with you that it should be – it is the economy stupid, as James Carville so uh, aptly said many years ago. It always is. It always is the kitchen table issues. And right now, inflation is number one. And I think uh, connecting the dots, I think Steve's right. It has to be laid on the Democrats' doorstep. The good news is that polling, ever since, actually, the price rise began, polling has put it on Joe Biden's doorstep. I think voters get it that we spent too much money. We spent more money than we spent fighting World War II. Mm. That's a pretty resonant soundbite. And by the way, it happens to be true. Mm. So, you know, I, I think we can talk about a lot of things, uh, Larry, uh, that that really bring this home to people. Uh, it, it, but but really, mainly, it's how are you going to afford to live? And and wages are not keeping up. And boy, I'll tell you what, here here is a real corker that's going to land on everyone's doorstep in the next six months. The house that the bill for heating your home this winter yep. is going to be horrendous. Electricity prices are already up 16% year mm. over year. Mm. That's a big, big number for a lot of people. It is not only hurtful to everyone, it is regressive. It is blacks and minorities, low-income Americans mm. who are really footing the bill for this. And when you see polling showing that black voters, yes, they're going to vote Democrat, but they're not very enthusiastic about it. And a smaller percentage uh, definitely support Joe Biden today than in the past. That's one of the reasons I'm very hopeful about a red wave in November. That is a group that doesn't always turn out. I think this will be an election where they don't. You know, there's a we talk about I mean, you're absolutely right. Electricity prices and home heating prices. Home heating is up 68 yep. percent. I mean, it's really unbelievable. Um, a piece uh, report put out by my pals. John Riding and Conrad DiQuatros. I just want to read you from this. Um, let's see. There was a 1.1% drop in used car prices. But, 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 car parts up 0.8, insurance up 1.6, and maintenance and repair up 1.9. And by the way, new cars went up a lot too. In yeah. other words, all these other things... It's expensive to drive a car. And, and, right? I mean, I mean, I know you're not supposed to have a car, gas-powered car in California and so forth, but most Americans drive gasoline-powered cars. And guess what? It's costing them a fortune to just drive a damn car. 
So and Larry, sorry, I mean, that's I just a, that's just another funny. you know little real world example <laughs> yeah, of how this affects ordinary folks. Sorry, let me tell you a real world world story. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, my wife you know wanted to trade in her car, so she went into a new car, you know, uh, a new sh- uh, showroom, and. Uh, like, I'm not making this up. He said, well, we don't have any cars to sell you, but we'll buy your car. <laughs> I mean, yes. I mean, it, right. it's unbelievable. If you want to buy a new car right now, I don't know if either of you tried to do that. You have to wait six to nine months or you have to pay ten or $15,000 above the sticker price to get one faster than that. Yikes. So the supply chain problems are a big problem. I don't understand why you guys are so worked up about you know utility costs and home heating and electric power costs. We can just do what the Germans are doing. Their advice is to, to light fires and to use candles. <laughs> I'm not making that up. Either. I know, I know, I know. The biggest renewable fuel right now in Germany is indeed firewood. Uh, but Larry, one thing you forgot to mention in this cost list for cars, imagine what it's going to cost to lease a new car, oh. because that also feeds in higher interest rates. I was thinking about this because one of our cars is about to come off lease. My guess is we are going to be stunned by the new numbers. Look, I've always said the Greenies want to take us back to the Stone Age. Oh, yeah. yeah, they are. So if we're going to do firewood, there you have it. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think by coming... Way, that's really bad for the environment, by the way. Burning yes, it wood is. is yeah. the, yes, the it is. Polluting. And, you know, we need trees to for carbon capture. So come on. I don't understand the Greens here. Well, I'm for trees. But the point <laughs> is, uh, I, you know, I, I just... It's like the polls are moving nicely now, you know, back in the Republican... Uh, direction. So the abortion stuff is diminished. The the Trump stuff is diminished. The inflation stuff is high, 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 high. And um, I saw. You know, Larry, one other quick thing about that. You know, I, I watched a couple of these Senate debates. Mm-hmm. Ron Johnson, uh, you know, uh, I watched the Arizona debate and I'm trying to remember which couple of other ones. And the Republicans just pummeled the Democrats, right. uh, you know, on Biden and also linking. I think it's important in all these close races to link the candidate to Joe Biden. Yeah. It's so interesting to me. I mean, these Democrats are like Joe Biden. Who's he? I never even heard of him before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Rasmussen reports has the generic ballot now plus seven for the GOP. Woo. It's up four points. This was the wow. thing that came out this morning. And, and you see these Senate races moving in GOP directions uh, almost everywhere. I don't know about the Georgia race or not. I, I didn't see that debate, but uh, well, I think Herschel, 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 Herschel did try to hammer him on inflation. Yeah, yeah and, was, uh, and, you know, I think Democrats have everyone convinced that Herschel Walker is a complete moron. So the fact that he actually held his right, own right, uh, exactly. and did pretty well in this debate kind of punched back at Warnock on several issues. Uh, guess what? When you set ex- expectations so low and constantly run down mm-hmm. a candidate, if they can yep. stand and, and utter a sentence, they've won. And that's basically <laughs> what happened. Did I see Warnock defended the Inflation Reduction Act because it'll cut insulin prices? Yeah, now and that, that's what they're all doing. I mean, that's the most obscure thing, for heaven's sakes. That doesn't show up anywhere. It's not going to show up anywhere. Households, kitchen tables, Budgets and real wages are getting clobbered. And I just think this is a message. You know, Steve, we come down. We've been in a lot of campaigns together the last month or so. Don't make this any harder than it needs to be. Reagan's rule, nice and simple, one or two points. That's it. And the Democrats have no response to it. I agree with that. And, you know, if you, I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago in your show, the three big red wave elections of our lifetime, 1980, 1994 and 2010, 
were all waves that came in in the last two or three weeks. So these yep. next three weeks are going to be critical. By the way, if you're right about plus seven, that's the equivalent of about 35 house seats yep. picked up, probably a net three in the Senate. Yeah, I know. This was this morning's Rasmussen reports, 2,500 likely voters. Um, you know, no polls, the end all be all, but it was interesting. All right, let's take a quick break. We come back, kids. I want to talk about what the GOP must do immediately upon taking office, uh, whatever, January 3rd, if they get both houses. We're here with Liz Peek and Steve Moore. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're talking money and politics. Two of the very best of the best, Liz Peek, Fox News contributor and syndicated columnist, and Steve Moore of FreedomWorks and Committee to Unleash Prosperity with his recent book, Godzilla. So I was talking to Art Laffer about at the top of the show I started last night with – no, I, John Thune was talking about it with him and Elise Stefanik earlier in the week. So picture it. The, the cavalry comes. you got both houses. You're going to be in an economic crisis. You're going to continue to have very high inflation and uh, undoubtedly some kind of recessionary economy, a crisis, a genuine crisis. The question is the GOP has got to be totally prepared – Come off this, get off the ground running, have a plan. I know they have the commitment to America, but they're going to have to specify you know, actions, budget actions, tax actions, regulatory actions, and so forth and so on, energy actions. And they're going to have to do it fast to persuade the country that this is a turnaround situation. And one last point. Uh, Art Laffer, we were talking about the memo um, – that David Stockman and Jack Kemp wrote to Reagan uh, in December of, uh, of 1980 it was called the Dunkirk Memo. And it was similar in the sense that they outlined a multi-pronged plan. I don't know, four or five points. I was actually a participant in that. Um, and so that we got, Reagan knew and could say to the public, to the voters, here's what we're going to do right away to turn this crisis around. And I'm interested in what you guys think here because there won't be a lot of time. I know they'll have to face Biden's veto, but they may be over to run, may be able to overrun him, depending on uh, some Democratic votes, maybe, maybe not. But don't you think? Uh, I'll start with you, Steve. Don't you think that the GOP has just got to be completely, totally ready to get moving uh, as soon as they, uh, if they get this victory? Yeah, I do. And, you know, what? the one thing we were just talking about, how good the numbers are right now for the Republicans, but there's still a seed of undecided voters or people I talk to just casually about they, they get everything we just said, but there is some skepticism about whether Republicans right. will do the things that they need to do right. to fix these problems. And so I agree with you. The Republicans need kind of uh, right out of the gate, actually, a very aggressive plan to look i don't want to be a johnny one note on this but we have got to cut government spending right. and a lot right. and so they have a chance by the way they could do a sequester mm-hmm. right away mm-hmm. it's in the law so all they have to do is is and that would save 100 billion dollars let's start with that the other thing that art mentioned liz is to try to repeal the set 87,000 irs agents for yes yeah you know, 80 billion to 100 whatever the number is but i'm just saying in very specific ways, you know, you all talked about connecting the dots between federal spending and inflation. Yes, yes, yes. They just need to connect the dots. Okay, now we won, 
and yeah, here's what and we're going to do. Right. And, and I agree with Steve. Uh, I spoke to a group at the Gaystone Institute a couple of days ago, and that's what their question was. Okay, so yep. we elect the Republicans. What can they do? I mean, clearly stop spending. I mean, just bring the hammer down on all. It, I, I think there is some ability to roll back recently passed bills. They should certainly take a look at that. Um, they should do whatever they can do to stop the student loan handouts. I think there's yep. going to be a lot of court challenges there. But also, Larry, I think people are so offended that there is so little oversight. Where has right. the money gone? Mm, I would create right. a special committee. Where has the money gone? And let's let's ferret out what, who are the recipients of that $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan. What infrastructure projects do we actually have underway that, that are getting all this money from the government? I'd start there because I actually think on real people are sort of looking at this and saying, well, I don't know of any bridges or tunnels being built. Where has that money gone, right? So that's something Congress is supposed to do, you know, make give it a snappy title. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean have TV ready uh, hearings about it, but, you know, really get serious people. And there are some on the other side of the aisle, too, who I think might be willing to contribute to it and say, what what are we doing with this money? Because you can repurpose some of the money. And that's what should be what should be done. You know, um, that's a great point. Uh, Congress can do that. They don't need Biden for that. That's they right. can do it right on their little own selves and and then just it's like revealing to the public just how bad it was and then showing how they can fix it. I mean, Steve, I know Biden will, will undoubtedly uh, yield the veto pen, although it remains to be seen how he's going to react to this if he gets clobbered. But putting that aside, uh, that's an unknown. But the Republicans will have an inflationary reason behind them to do the necessary spending restraints and probably some other things, you know, on, on, on energy permitting, for example, uh, and, uh, and the, uh, Liz's oversight. So you can – look, I know it's a cliche, but you can make good use of a crisis and you can do this in a good way, not always a bad way. It doesn't have to mean you have to spend a fortune and manufacture a crisis. You have an inflationary crisis. That should give the Republicans after the elections – all the ammo they need to move forward. And Biden and the Democrats oppose that, Steve. They will look like damn fools and set up a 2024 Republican White House. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I love, love, love the idea of uh, rescinding the money for the 87,000 IRS agents. Americans yeah. are really upset about that. And um, and uh, that's just outrageous. And so, and by the way, I think Kevin McCarthy has said that will be yes. one of his first first things out of the gate. So yes. bravo to Kevin McCarthy on that. Um, and then I completely agree with Liz. Uh, you know, I've been saying this too, Liz, you're so right that we've had probably a half a trillion dollars that has been stolen from the American taxpayers, a half a yeah. trillion. I mean, yeah. I'm not talking about, you know, millions of dollars or billions of, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars. The Republicans, uh, you know, for example, our friend Kevin Brady, who runs, you know, the ranking minority member in the house, he's leaving, unfortunately, but he has tried to call for investigative hearings. What happened to the food stamp money? What happened yeah. to, the, to the PPP money? What happened to the unemployment insurance program, which had $150 billion of fraud? And the Democrats said, no, 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 we don't even want to know. Right. We don't even want to find out. Right. So that is an outrage. I mean, I think the waste and fraud and abuse issue, remember, does this harken back? To what Reagan talked about, remember, Larry? Yes. Waste, fraud, and yes. abuse in the budget. Yes. And it is 10 times worse today than it was in 1980. And see, the, the, the thought I have here is that the inflation crisis 
gives them the currency to do this. And Biden can try to stop it, but it'll be to his own political peril. Oh, hey, can I mention one other quick thing, Larry? Yeah. When we're talking about I, yeah. how about one of the most outrageous things I've seen in my 35 years in Washington is that that Inflation Reduction Act, I call it the Inflation Acceleration Act, it gives three a $350 billion slush fund yeah. to John Podesta and the Democrats yeah. to yeah. pass out to their green energy friends. That is the most outrageous <laughs> misabuse of taxpayer money ever. We've got to defund that massive. Well, you know, that's not going to. No, no, that's important. That stuff has that stuff has not gone out, has not been spent. The idea of rescissions, congressional rescissions could be very important. That's a tool. Now, I'm going to go back 40 years and give David Stockman, who, you know, was good before he was bad. But putting that stuff aside, David, our whole OMB group used rescission authority for Reagan to stop spending. Now, that's an executive branch. Steve, I have to look at this. There's congressional rescissions, if I'm not mistaken, that appropriation committees are permitted to use. And that's another weapon that they should unveil. And again, all this stuff, Liz, if you're running 7% inflation, 6%, 7% basic inflation, and the public, you know, real wages keep falling month after month, I, I just think that gives... This kind of aggressive actions you all are describing, tremendous currency. I don't, I, I don't see how it can be stopped politically. I really I don't. Agree. And and you know we look, we've been through uh, uh, times in our it, not not too long ago, to, after the uh, property bubble exploded in two thousand eight. Uh, and we had a big recession there, there was a lot of enthusiasm for reining in the budget. I mean, people are not, Americans are essentially fiscal conservatives. They want to see that their government is in good shape. Uh, And I think you can really make a case right now that all this runaway spending has hurt the country. And so it has to stop. Stopping it has to start with public opinion. And that's why oversight and investigations and kind of explaining where all the money went is incredibly important because I think you'll get I think I think it's a great segue to the election in 2024 and let's face it that's going to be an incredibly important uh guidepost to what Congress should do over the next 2 years. By the by the way Steve Moore I had um you know do you know Elise Stefanik you know her she was no. on. She was on I mean, the I show. Know she, I know who she is, she, but I don't know. Uh, she, she was just terrific. She was. I guess I had her on a few months earlier, but she was on the other night, you know, talking about this stuff. What you know? What will you do if you win? And she was so strong, really, really strong. And that kind of energy and commitment will go a long ways. All right, we're out of time. That's great session to both of you, Liz Peak and Thanks, Steve Larry. Moore. Thank you very, very much. I will see both of you on the show. This coming week, folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. It is a great pleasure to be with you, and we will be back here next weekend.